Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is the Fermoy Army Riot, the War of Independence, Part 8. In this episode, we move south to the Cork town of Fermoy. Now, up to this point in the war, most clashes have been between the IRA and police constables. This show will see a British army garrison enter the fray. These are battle-hardened veterans from the First World War and pose a very different threat, as we're about to see. The show also introduces some big names, including Liam Lynch, arguably one of the most influential and important IRA commanders during the war, and also Winston Churchill. The show releases have been out of schedule of late, but as you're probably aware, this is to do with audio issues. Anyway, after numerous delays, I finally have a new mic and hopefully you're already noticing an improvement in the sound quality. Thanks for your patience over previous weeks. Lastly, before we get into the episode, don't forget to check out the shop. There are new posters including original designs from the War of Independence being added each week. At the moment, there's a cool new series of posters featuring leading figures from the war including Terence McSweeney and Constance Markovich. They're really worth checking out. It's all available at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. That's irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. I'll post a link in the show notes beneath this episode. Finally, as always, additional research on the show was by the archivist and historian Sam McGrath. Sound was by Jason Looney. Additional narrations are by Aidan Crowe and Therese Murray. And the artwork for the series is by Keith Hines. One of the biggest challenges facing most countries in Western Europe after the First World War was demobilisation. During the war, millions of men had been conscripted into armies that were no longer needed. In Britain alone, over 2 million people left the armed forces in 1919. While this presented massive challenges for society across the board, for the soldiers themselves, This process was frequently difficult and disorientating, having spent years in army camps or at the front. The transition back to civilian life was often dogged by difficulties in finding work in an economy that had drastically changed. The realities of post-war life left all too many veterans disillusioned. 
the promise made by the British Prime Minister David Lloyd George that they would return to a land fit for heroes did not match their experience of poverty and poor housing. In this context, when the King's Shropshire Light Infantry Regiment received the news they were being shipped to Ireland in 1919, this must have come as something of a relief. A tour of duty in Ireland postponed the inevitable unemployment that awaited many of them once they were demobilised. While serving in Ireland was not without risk given the increasing violence on the island, the regiment took comfort in the fact that they had been through far, far worse. Even the younger soldiers were hardened veterans. Private William Jones, for example, was only 20 years of age in 1919, but he had experience of trench warfare and the German prisoner of war camp. Born in South Wales, in the Welsh-speaking village of Abernan, in 1899, he had been captured on the Western Front in March 1918. After spending the remainder of the war in a prisoner of war camp, on his release he discovered his brother Evan, also a soldier, had been killed a few weeks after his capture. Now while soldiers like Jones had endured the hardships of war and faced the realities of death on the battlefield, on their arrival in Ireland they discovered these First World War experiences had not really prepared them for the conflict unfolding on the island. The IRA were waging a highly unconventional guerrilla war. Volunteers did not wear uniforms or identify themselves as combatants. They carried out a military operation and then melted back into their normal civilian lives. The person who worked in the local pub or ploughed the fields by day could be the same person who gathered intelligence for the IRA or even carried out armed raids at night. This left soldiers increasingly on edge, struggling to identify friend from foe. Already, by the summer of 1919, there was anecdotal evidence that this may have been starting to take a toll. In early June, as violence intensified after the knock-long ambush, Private Patrick McNiff was returning to his barracks in Dublin after dark. When he did not correctly return a call to identify himself, a sentry on guard panicked and opened fire. McNiff suffered horrific injuries to his abdomen and chest while part of his left hand was blown away. He died a few hours later. That this reflected a growing strain on soldiers in Ireland was reinforced by the fact a civilian had been shot in very similar circumstances only a few days earlier. Matthew Murphy, a salesman, had been a passenger in a car that had been stopped at an army checkpoint at New Inn, County Louth. Again, confusion arose over a failure to return calls from a sentry who subsequently opened fire. The windscreen of the car was shattered and Matthew Murphy was shot in the leg. He died of septicemia a few days later. Now, while William Jones and his comrades in the Shropshire Light Infantry Regiment found themselves in this increasingly tense environment, they don't appear to have had any sense of imminent risk or impending danger. Garrisoned in Fermoy in East Cork, This major British army installation with two barracks and a new aerodrome offered a sense of security. In any case, while the death toll was increasing in the war, the IRA had not yet killed a single soldier and Republican activity around Fermoy was pretty limited. This left the soldiers free to enjoy the rhythms of a relatively normal life. William Jones, for example, was able to attend Sunday service in the Wesleyan Methodist Church in Fermoy with other soldiers from the barracks, and although army regulations stipulated they should always carry loaded weapons, 
Jones and the others went through the motions of carrying rifles, but didn't bother to load them. However, unbeknownst to the soldiers of the Fermoy garrison, they were increasingly at the centre of a major tactical debate in the IRA between local brigades who wanted to launch attacks and the general headquarters in Dublin who urged a more cautious approach. When this would be resolved, life in Fermoy would change dramatically. Through 1919, the IRA as an organisation was chronically short of weapons. They were largely reliant on shotguns and revolvers, weapons that could be easily sourced in local communities across Ireland. Shotguns in particular could be found in many farmhouses and in some instances their owners were happy to hand them over. In cases where farmers were unwilling, they were often stolen or taken at gunpoint. While these were easily sourced, shotguns were ill-suited to the guerrilla war the IRA were waging, given they were only lethal up to about 100 metres. They desperately needed the rifles used by the police and the army. This desire to secure rifles had shaped the IRA's activity through early 1919, leading to numerous ambushes on isolated RIC patrols in particular, which could be easily disarmed. As 1919 wore on, however, local IRA companies, after months and years of drilling, were increasingly eager to launch more daring and large-scale raids that involved greater risks but offered larger caches of weapons. Many units wanted to raid RIC barracks themselves or ambush army patrols. While this was driven by a quest to secure weapons, local commanders were also aware volunteers were growing restless through inactivity. Be that as it may, the headquarters staff in Dublin, who were supposed to be consulted and approve all actions, cautioned a more hesitant approach. They feared a headlong rush into conflict might leave the IRA isolated from the wider population. These tensions between the differing approaches of the general headquarters staff on the one hand and local brigades on the other resulted in major arguments by the summer of 1919. For example, Michael Brennan, the commander of the East Clare Brigade, as you're about to hear, devised an ambitious operation that would have seen a dramatic increase in activity for his brigade. All through the summer, I continued organising and training the men, with occasional raids for arms of which we got news. I felt that something desperate would have to be done to secure some rifles, as the moral effect of one rifle at the time was greater than that of a hundred shotguns. I arranged for a general onslaught on the RIC all over the brigade area for one night. As nothing like this was anticipated, it would almost certainly have been successful, but there probably would have been heavy casualty. When Richard Mulcahy, the chief of staff of the IRA, discovered the plan, he summoned Brennan to Dublin to explain himself. I was summoned to Dublin and handled very roughly by Richard Mulcahy, who was the chief of staff. His point was, of course, that the people had to be educated and led gently into open war. And what I proposed might scare them off. This perspective, outlined by Mulcahy, was elaborated on by Florio Donoghue, an intelligence officer with the 1st Cork Brigade. The governing policy was one of not committing the whole force to the conflict at the start. And though severe damage was done to the economic life of the country, no part of the country was completely devastated. While this debate between local units eager for action and the general headquarters was being thrashed out within the IRA in 1919, it gained relevancy for the Shropshire Light Infantry Regiment in Fermoy, 
when another IRA brigade commander arrived in Dublin to meet with the General Headquarters staff. This was the 27-year-old Liam Lynch, who was the OC or Officer Commanding of the 2nd Cork Brigade, which operated in the east and north of Cork County. When he met with the Chief of Staff, Richard Mulcahy, Lynch requested both weapons and, more importantly, permission to start launching raids. Not only was his brigade desperately short of weapons, but like many other IRA commanders, he was cognizant that the volunteers in East Cork were growing restless through inactivity. His brigade had seen little action of any consequence aside from one minor raid and supporting volunteers on the run after the knock-long ambush. The natural target for his volunteers in Fermoy was the British Army, but the headquarters staff in Dublin initially refused in line with their cautious approach. In the following weeks, Lynch persisted, arguing his case, until the headquarters staff finally relented, granting him permission to launch a raid. Unbeknownst to the garrison, the soldiers in Fermoy were now being closely observed as they continued to go about their business. By July, Liam Lynch and the 2nd Cork Brigade of the IRA had gathered intelligence on the movements of army regiments stationed in the town. They were looking for an opportunity to ambush soldiers in order to rob their weapons. However, the volunteers in the East Cork Brigade were inexperienced, most having never seen conflict. Furthermore, with only six revolvers at their disposal, they had to try and identify a situation where they would have a fighting chance. For example, raiding either of the barracks in Fermoy was not even entertained. They would have been completely outnumbered, facing soldiers who were far better armed and more experienced. With this in mind, Lynch identified William Jones and the group of soldiers who, as we heard earlier, attended the Sunday service in the Wesleyan Methodist Church in Fermoy every week as a potentially vulnerable group. This group was ideal for a well-coordinated ambush. The soldiers regularly walked the same route at the same time, which facilitated surveillance and planning. They also carried the all-important rifles the IRA wanted and needed. The location of the church was also ideal. Situated about half a mile from the military installations in Fermoy, this would allow time to execute a raid and then make good on an escape before reinforcements arrived. Patrick Ahern, later appointed the intelligence officer with the Fermoy Battalion, was involved in this surveillance and he remembered The movements of the Wesleyan Church Party were kept under observation for about three months. The party usually marched in fours from their barracks via Barrack Hill, the Square and Patrick Street to Walker's Row, the site of the Wesleyan Church. While three months might seem like an excessive amount of time to spend monitoring a target that was ultimately a small enough party of soldiers, what the volunteers were about to do carried great risk. The Shropshire Light Infantry Regiment posed a far greater challenge than the Royal Irish Constabulary. As we've heard, men like William Jones were hardened veterans of the First World War. And in Fermoy, the IRA would face between 15 and 20 of them. Nothing could be left to chance. When the date of Sunday, September the 7th, 1919 was chosen, Liam Lynch assembled a team of 35 volunteers. Given there was a shortage of weapons, most of them had to arm themselves with short clubs. They also had secured two cars for the raid, while one would be used to ferry a group of volunteers to the church just as the soldiers arrived. The other was parked up outside. 
This allowed more volunteers to stand around the car without drawing attention to themselves as they pretended it was broken down. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy. And BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone, or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash irishhistory. Then as the soldiers approached the church, Patrick Ahern remembered how the volunteers masked their nerves. Some were strolling round, reading papers and generally appearing to be killing time, in the vicinity of the route taken by the church party as they neared the Wesleyan church. They were all waiting for a signal. All had instructions to rush the enemy party when the order, hands up, was given by Lar Condon, who was in charge of the main attacking party. In some accounts, it was not Lar Condon, but Liam Lynch himself who ordered the soldiers to put their hands up as he pulled up outside the church in one of the cars. But regardless of who issued the call, it was ignored by the soldiers. They instead resisted and a melee broke out, but the soldiers, having defied military orders, found themselves carrying weapons with no bullets. Meanwhile, the volunteers were armed with shorter clubs which were easier to wield, and they attacked the soldiers trying to wrestle the rifles from them. During the fight, Liam Lynch fell to the ground and William Jones, the Welsh private who we met earlier, standing over him, raised his rifle to strike Lynch with the butt. It was then that the first shot rang out. It was not Lynch who was struck, but another IRA volunteer who was never identified had shot William Jones. He immediately collapsed. The bullet had pierced his heart, killing him instantly. The struggle would continue around the lifeless body of William Jones, but within minutes the volunteers had overpowered the soldiers and taken their weapons. Fifteen rifles in total were loaded into two waiting cars and they set off out of Fermoy in the direction of Lismore. 
Fully expecting to be followed, they had carefully planned their getaway. Two trees at Carrick Brick on the Lismore Road had been partially sawn through and then held in place by ropes. Once the two cars passed this point, the ropes were cut and the trees fell across the road. Anyone in pursuit would have to undertake a considerable detour or waste to clear the trees. Telegraph lines had also been cut to stop the army calling out reinforcements along the road. These precautions guaranteed a successful escape. By the day's end, the 2nd Cork Brigade had scored a significant victory. They had successfully ambushed a party of soldiers in the heart of British power in the region. While this instilled confidence in the brigade, the operation would gain far greater significance given what unfolded in Fermoy in the following days. The fact William Jones's death made him the first British Army soldier to be killed by Republicans since 1916 guaranteed there would be a backlash, although what transpired shocked nearly everyone. After the raid, the authorities in Fermoy swung into action. The police raided houses and arrested several people they suspected of being involved. Liam Lynch himself had sustained a minor bullet wound to the shoulder, so he had gone into hiding. It would have been very difficult to explain why he had a gunshot wound in the days after the ambush. Alongside the police investigation, an inquest had to take place as well. This was required by law to determine the exact cause of William Jones's death, and while it appeared to be a formality given the circumstances, the verdict shocked the authorities. To appreciate what happened around William Jones's inquest, it's worth bearing in mind that juries at inquests in the early 20th century had far greater powers than they do today. They were known to pronounce judgments that might be considered political and frequently named people they believed responsible for deaths. At William Jones's inquest, the hearing itself was pretty predictable and uneventful. The local doctor testified how Jones had died after he was shot through the heart. Then various other witnesses, including several soldiers who had been present, also gave evidence as to how this had transpired. The verdict, it was assumed, would be a clear case of willful murder by persons unknown. The jury in Fermoy stopped short of this and instead gave a far more nuanced but politically charged interpretation. While they condemned the act and expressed sympathy with William Jones's friends and family, they refused to pass a verdict of willful murder as had been expected. Instead, the foreman declared the unanimous view of the jury that These men came for the purpose of getting rifles and had no intention of killing anybody. While it might seem like a small distinction, it was a deeply political statement in the context of 1919. It was widely interpreted as an expression of sympathy or understanding with the IRA by the townspeople from whom the jury had been selected. It was yet another indication that public opinion was changing and sympathy for the Republican movement was growing. While the findings of the inquest provoked outrage among the authorities, when news reached the Fermoy garrison, the troops in the barracks were outraged. Seething at the verdict, they demanded vengeance and the soldiers resolved to exact collective punishment on the people of Fermoy. The Freeman's Journal reported on what unfolded. About nine o'clock, parties of soldiers said to belong to the Shropshire Light Infantry Regiment, accompanied by a number of artillerymen, proceeded to break windows on the Square, Bank Street and Patrick Street. 
The soldiers were joined by a number of women and youths, and systematic looting began. Shops were wrecked and looted for about an hour and a half, and the looters were apparently able to carry on their operations without interference. Women could be seen carrying off large parcels, whilst the people looked on helplessly. Soldiers assisted in the looting, which after a while became general. The number of soldiers involved varied depending on the source from 20 to 200, but it appears to have been around 50. In total, around 60 shops in Fermoy were severely damaged and several people were wounded by flying debris. This atrocity provoked outrage not only in Ireland, but garnered international attention, being reported in newspapers from New York to Beijing. Across Ireland, not least in Fermoy, people wanted answers as to who was exactly responsible and demanded they should be held accountable. The most grave accusation emanating from Fermoy claimed that army officers had in fact led the soldiers in their attack on the town. While the British army denied this was the case, the officers themselves later gave contradictory statements in this regard, with one claiming officers had in fact been present. In many ways, though, this is something of a moot point. Regardless of whether they were physically present, it became clear that the army leadership in Fermoy were complicit. They had allowed the riot to continue for over an hour before they made any attempt to stop it. Furthermore, when the divisional commander, General Strickland, arrived in Cork to address the troops, his speech was not exactly a stinging rebuke. One soldier present remembered, The divisional commander from Cork addressed the battalion. He said that we had a damned dirty trick played on us, and we had had an adequate revenge, but enough was enough. It was his job to see that discipline was observed. When the Viceroy of Ireland, Lord John French, addressed the gathering in Belfast on September the 11th, three days after the events in Fermoy. He made no mention of the army riot, only talking about how the IRA campaign was not engaging in fair and open combat. Indeed, this attitude permeated right through the corridors of power. In 1920, the Secretary for War, Winston Churchill, expressed a similar view when addressing the House of Commons about the army riot in Fermoy. His words appeared to condone the action. Everyone knows what happened the day before in Fomoy. Soldiers who were returning from church had been set upon and killed, and the coroner's jury had brought in a verdict which practically expressed no condemnation of that crime. In these circumstances, it is very regrettable but not wonderful that the anger of the troops was violently excited and for a short period, in which I am glad to say, no life was lost. They broke the bonds of military discipline and control and inflicted a great deal of damage on the town. Had the army riot and the collective punishment exacted on the town of Fermoy been an isolated incident, these statements would not have mattered so much. However, the reactions of General Strickland, Lord John French and Winston Churchill framed the beginning of what amounted to an unofficial policy of collective punishment which led to notorious incidents like the burning of Cork City in December 1920. While these events, the Fermoy ambush, the death of William Jones and then the subsequent army riot, as well as the knock-long ambush before it, dominated the narrative of the War of Independence, these did obscure important developments that were also taking place through the summer and autumn of 1919. While the conflict was still at a low level 
As we will see next, the IRA was emerging as an increasingly capable organisation in other parts of Ireland. Although not as well known as the Tipperary or Cork Brigades, by the summer of 1919, the Newry Brigade of the IRA in South Armagh was already one of the best organised in the country. In May 1919, led by Patrick Rankin and Frank Aiken, the Newry Brigade, supported by IRA battalions from County Loud and Down, had launched an audacious raid on Ballyedmond Castle. Using intelligence gathered in the port of Liverpool that the Unionist paramilitary, the Ulster Volunteer Force, had stored weapons in the castle, over 100 volunteers converged on this stately home at a pre-arranged time with IRA members travelling from several areas including some by sea. While the raid ended in an anticlimax as the weapons had been moved prior to their arrival, the sophistication and complexity of this operation was impressive. In that summer of 1919, the IRA and County Clare were also becoming increasingly active. The RIC barracks in Newmarket and Fergus had been captured in late July and a large quantity of ammunition taken. In West Clare, two RIC constables were ambushed outside Ennistimon and their weapons taken that summer as well. This success would spur on the IRA in the area to repeat this operation a few days later. However, on that occasion, the constables fought back and in the ensuing firefight, both policemen were killed. In the autumn of 1919, the Dublin IRA began an intense campaign against the Dublin Metropolitan Police and in particular what was known as the G Division, the plainclothes detectives who were to the fore of the police campaign against the IRA and Sinn Féin in the city. This had started in earnest on September the 8th when Patrick Smith was killed. Four days later, another detective, Daniel Hoy, had been shot dead. Just over a month later still, Michael Downing was shot dead and then... In November 1919, the assassination of Detective Sergeant John Barton brought the total number of detectives killed in Dublin by the IRA to four. The collective experience and expertise of these detectives was irreplaceable to the authorities. These actions were carried out by a group of volunteers that would become known as the Squad. The idea of formulating a hand-picked group of IRA members based in Dublin to carry out these type of attacks had been formulated by Dick McKee and developed by Michael Collins and will become an important force as we will see as the war continues. During these months the IRA and Meath also began to launch attacks. On October the 31st an attack on Beliver RAC barracks in County Meath resulted in the death of one policeman. That same night another battalion in Meath raided this Mullen RAC barracks and a constable there had been seriously wounded. Eugene Bratton a constable in the area would later recall. This was the first time we realised that the IRA were strong and organised in the area. In response to this surge in activity, the British authorities launched a major campaign of repression. This had seen the Doyle, the Republican Parliament, banned on September the 12th. While this had been on the cards for months, the authorities felt the situation was spiralling out of control and were increasingly trying to reassert their authority. While the activity of the Doyle will feature in a later episode, in the summer of 1919 they had issued what was called the Doyle Loan where they asked supporters of independence to loan them money which would be repaid after independence. The idea was that this money would finance their activities. It was in essence an early version of crowdfunding and had been an overwhelming success 
which alarmed the authorities. It indicated considerable numbers not only supported the Republican movement, but were willing to put their money behind it as well. The banning of the Doyle did not bring an end to its activities, but instead it shifted its operations underground. Michael Collins's Department of Finance, for example, had to relocate in Dublin three times before the end of 1919 to keep ahead of the police. That said, once the Doyle moved underground, meetings of this parliament were more and more difficult to convene, while many of its departments were very limited in what they actually did. Overall, however, this repression served only to radicalise the Republican movement, as political avenues were increasingly closed off to them. The failure to receive a hearing at the Paris peace talks and then the suppression of the Dáil inevitably left the intensification of the military conflict as the main option available to them. It was around this time that Michael Collins said, All ordinary peaceful methods are ended and we shall be taking the only alternative actions in a short while now. While the Republican movement was being radicalised in the later months of 1919, the British authorities were trying to deal with a major morale crisis that was hampering their ability to fight the war. In the next episode, we need to look more deeply at the British understanding of the conflict, so we will spend more time in the corridors of power in Dublin and London. This also will coincide with an IRA attack on the heart of the British authorities in Ireland. Until then, Sloan. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 